Well, it's good to be back with you today. Missed you last week. I heard y'all had a good time, though. We were at camp. Youth camp, kids camp. We went up to Ridgecrest, North Carolina. You might have known that. Great, incredible place to go. Beautiful up there. But I got to tell you, we had some fun getting there. We left here. What day did we leave? I don't even Wednesday? Wednesday, yeah. Left out of here Wednesday. Got to Orangeburg, South Carolina. Yeah, I know. I was impressed, too. Um, that metropolis or whatever it was, and went out and did our normal, had to have Cracker Barrel whenever we go to camp several times. Actually, I think we just did it the once. Just once, yeah. And so went to Cracker Barrel for dinner, and as we're sitting there, um, we're asking about a place in town where we could go, uh, maybe pick up some things we needed. And the waitress mentioned, just uh, myself and David Fowler heard it, so the stores close early around here. This is not a safe town. I thought, well, wait a minute. That's not good. But I sort of brushed it off. We went back to the hotel and, you know, got in our rooms and slept. Next morning, got up early, went downstairs to put gas in the, the van that we rented. Um, and Dave and Shelly Fowler and their, their guys were with us. They took their truck up there because they stayed for a few extra days. Went out, got in the van, and went to the gas station and noticed when I came back that the Fowler's truck wasn't there. And Shelly came down a few minutes later and said, Hey, Shelly, did y'all move your truck last night? She said, What do you mean? I said, Did you get in and drive your truck to a different place? No, I didn't say it like that. What move your truck means. Did you move the truck? I, I mean, wasn't it parked right beside me? She goes, Yeah. I said, Well, it's not there. She thought I was kidding her, actually. She, she thought I was just pulling her leg. She had no idea. I was like, no, seriously, it's not out there. So she takes off down the hallway. I'm like, okay. And she looks outside. Truck's not there. She calls up to the room, asks David, her husband, uh, Dave, did you move the truck? I don't know what you said. I'm sure it was a lovely conversation. Certain words were used, and and he, uh, the, the bottom line is, no, they did not move the truck. Some other folks were nice enough in the middle of the night to come and move their truck down the road. And across, you know, they, they stole their truck. There we are. Here we are on the way to camp, first day of camp, truck gone. How exciting. Now, the story is wonderfully fun. Not really. They found the truck. Well, actually, it wasn't that long after the police came and did the police thing that police do when the truck's been stolen. And a few minutes later, Dave turns to Shelly and says, Shelly, come here. They found our stuff. And it was a half an hour, maybe, after the police got there, another detective found all their luggage. It had been dumped out of the back of their truck on the side of the road. Lovely. You know, not necessarily folded um, nicely. Pilfered through, I think. But they noticed because um, of some things in there that were labeled, and the call came that the Fowlers had, had trucks stolen. Now they had some medical things that said Fowler on. They put two and two together because police are sharp and brought the stuff right to the hotel. So that was good. Good. So Dave and I a little later went out and in the area where they found their stuff, drove around looking to see if there were more things. And yes, there were other piles of Fowler stuff just by the side of the road. It was a lovely thing. It was over actually on a side road near a Honda motorcycle dealership slash repair shop. And we pulled up and the, one of the people there said, yeah, we got the guys on camera earlier. Apparently, the owner of the shop had had some problems, if I'm getting my story right. Shelly has a rebuttal when I'm done. 
Um, the owner of the, of the shop had some problems with people trying to break in, so he had spent the night at his shop sleeping there and heard some commotion. This is my favorite part. Went outside with his shotgun in his underwear. <laughs> this is why we go to camp. This is it. Chased them off and had, you know, some things. Apparently, they needed a truck. And Dave's truck was a Ford F-250. Easy to steal. Can't steal an F-150, apparently. I don't know what that extra 100 gets you. Apparently, it gets you less of a truck. But there you go. Stole the 250 because they wanted to clean out the back and steal, actually, some motorcycles. Well, that plot was foiled. And so they did what any self-respecting criminal would do. They dumped the truck at the local strip joint. Let's go to camp. So I just do the sign up now for next year and see how many we can get to go. So that was kind of, that was kind of how we started uh, the the first morning out of town dealing with all that. Now now God is is good. Um, the truck was recovered probably by before noon. They had found the truck, identified it, knew it was theirs. They had to do the you know because of the crime scene stuff to see if they get any prints off of it and all that sort of thing. Um, Dave. I'm going to tell this. He's not here to defend himself. Lost his truck, obviously. Lots of stuff in it. Apparently he had a multi-tool on the dashboard of the truck. And all morning, from like, what, 7.15 on, all he talked about, I know they took my multi-tool. I know they took my multi-tool. They just put it in their pocket and walk off. That's of my, my favorite. I just sharpened my multi-tool. I'll buy you another multi-tool. But guess what was sitting on the dashboard of the truck? Dave's. There are lots of other things we could say about it. The, the, the police were quite surprised. They said, you know, usually in this area when they steal a vehicle and they can't do what they want to with it, they just burn it. So, I mean, there was some minor damage to the ignition and the, the cover, and I think that was the main stuff. They got the ignition fixed in Asheville while we were at camp. Uh, so that was how we started. We said, boy, this is going to be good. This is how it begins. So, so there we went. went. It was a great week of camp. Um, good times both for the teens and, and for uh, the kids there. Ridgecrest is a beautiful place. How many of you have ever been to Ridgecrest? Even, okay, I know we got good. If you've never been there, it's Lifeway, Southern Baptist, whatever you want to call it. It's our mountain uh, conference center up there. It's a gorgeous place, beautiful facilities, beautiful location right outside of Black Mountain, North Carolina. Um, if, you, if you ever see a conference there and you got nothing better to do, go. And you can also just rent a hotel room there and, and all that sort of thing. Beautiful place. We enjoy taking the, the teens up every year for that. So we'll do it again. I, I've learned a few things at camp. One thing I've, I've learned, maybe you didn't notice, the importance of the selfie. So I thought maybe today we'd just start out with a church selfie to keep in that. Are, are we good? So I don't know if you want to gather together. Carlos, you were already hopping and dancing up here. I don't know if we need that, too. How do you work this thing? So, so are we just going to do this side, or do I have to do three? These are the kind Okay. So, oh, that's, wait. I should get a, is there a professional selfie taker in the room? Okay, are we ready? Are you going to act like you care you're here? I mean, the back row, which I can't really see, has their hands in the air and waving. Like, the front row is just like, am I on? All right, church selfie. Okay. 
that will be destroyed. <laughs> but, I mean, everywhere, got your, your camera phone, kids taking selfies uh, all over the place. We, we live in the selfie generation. I know this because I, I'm sure you weren't aware, and if you weren't, you're going to want to go out and buy this right now. Kim Kardashian actually has a whole book out just of selfies. I know. I know. She got famous in some ways we don't want to talk about. <laughs> but that's, I mean, that's our, that's our culture. The self, I actually saw a, a picture on, on the Internet, of course, of uh, like an old office. And the point of the picture was everything in this office is now on your smartphone. What, what these things do is certainly camera technology. And what we just did, I, I didn't do it, but did you know over 250 million pictures a day are uploaded to, like, Facebook and Instagram and the other uh, social media-type services? Over, can you imagine that? 250 million a day. It is remarkable how, how quickly those go and how much of our lives we've, we've sort of cataloged on a device like this. Um, now... When I was a kid, the, the greatest thing we had for vacation, I'm sure you remember this, was the Polaroid camera. Who had a Polaroid? Who doesn't know what a Polaroid is? Yeah, exactly. Anybody under a certain age, right? Polaroid camera. I mean, that was sort of one of those. You pushed the button and the picture came out. Well, the promise of the picture came out. It was actually just usually a blackish piece of photo paper and... How many of you remember this? Not because it was hot. You just had to kind of, sh- I don't know what that did. If it just made me feel better, at least I'm doing something. And you'd wait a few minutes and slowly that picture would develop. And that was amazing because before that, how did you get a picture? You had to take, I mean, could you imagine? There was a day and a time when people took pictures and they didn't know what it looked like. They had to take a whole roll, 24, 36 of them. And after they took all of those pictures, then they had to take them to the local, well, in my town, it was the local Eckerd Drugs, which I don't think even exists anymore, and leave them there. I mean, today you can leave them there for an hour. Back then it was like several days later. And then you would go to the, to the drugstore and pick up your pictures and look at them and go, well, there's like two that I can use. I mean, the good old days, right? We've come a long way in picture technology, I guess we could say, from a, a point and shoot or point and upload to those days when it took days or even weeks to go from the time you took the picture. You know, it was actually fun to go get the pictures because you'd forgotten why you took them. <laughs> oh, I remember that now. Just crazy how that happens. Of course, I think some of that technology and some of those advances as great as they are in the sense of pictures and other things, that mentality, unfortunately, I believe, has crept into our view of what it means to be a follower of Christ. It's crept in in this sense that we are a people that are so used to instant feedback, instant gratification, snap, upload, post, comment, everything's about, you know, in a day, how many likes can you get on this or that? It's so much about that that we miss the fact that God probably works more like that old Kodak photographic process. 
where they took that film and took it to the place and, and it went into the dark room. Now, some people, some schools actually had dark rooms. I never was into photography as a kid, never got into a dark room. But anybody done that? Just curious. Anybody? Okay, so you know how that works. It's quite a process. And I know what's, the reason it's called a dark room is because what do you not want in there? Light. I mean, do you remember the horror if you were maybe getting toward the end of that role and you thought it was done and you would open the back of the camera and it wasn't and there was film and it was exposed? Was that just me? And that was tragedy when that would happen, that that would be the case in all those pictures that you wouldn't remember what you took anyway, gone. And I think as we... As we look at our lives, that that is the picture that I see in Scripture of what God is up to in our life. That He wants to, much like you would take your camera and take a picture the old way, and the light would enter through the lens and would go onto that film and would create a latent image that over time could be developed into something visible. I think that's the better picture of how Christ works in our life. God implants in us this latent image at salvation, the image of Christ Jesus himself. And over time, the, the ideal is that image would develop into the character of Christ, working itself out in our lives and preparing us to live for him. It's not instant. It's not immediate. It takes time. In fact, I want to look at a, a person in Scripture who had that experience and who embodies what that means. Maybe we can learn a few things from him. It's one of the Old Testament heroes, the greatest king in all of Israel. David himself understood and lived what it means to be developed in God's dark room. We're going to start out today looking at 1 Samuel chapter 16. 1 Samuel chapter 16 is where we'll jump in. And this is kind of the beginning of of David's ascent to the throne. But it is not a quick ascent. It is not an immediate turnaround. Some things have to happen. And I want to look through this chapter 16 um, for a few minutes as we do it. Now I'm going to kind of read through the story just to give us the broad overview. And then we'll go back and look at some of the things. So guys, you, don't, you can't follow along with me on the, on the screens just yet. Got the thumbs up from the sound room. First Samuel 16, verse 1. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you mourn for Saul since I have rejected him as king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and be on your way. I am sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. Hey, that sounds like a familiar city. Bethlehem. I think I've heard of that. I have chosen one of his sons to be king. But Samuel said, How can I go? Saul will hear about it and kill me. And the Lord said, Take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what to do. You are to anoint for me the one I indicate. Samuel did what the Lord said. When he arrived at Bethlehem, the elders of the town trembled when they met him. They asked, do you come in peace? Can you? I I read that, and I'm like, man, how things have changed. Could you imagine when the prophet of God came into town, the response of the people was, "Uh uh-oh, what did we do wrong now? Have we messed up? Are you here to to preach God's judgment or to bring God's... So interesting. Another story for another day. Verse 5, Samuel replied, Yes, in peace, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come to the sacrifice with me. Then he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. Okay, I've got to take those off. Those are for distance, so what I'm trying to read is blurry. I'm sorry. When they arrived, Samuel saw Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed stands here before the Lord. 
But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things man looks at. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and had him pass in front of Samuel. But Samuel said, The Lord has not chosen this one either. Jesse then had Shammah pass by, but Samuel said, Nor has the Lord chosen this one. Jesse had seven of his sons pass before Samuel, but Samuel said to him, The Lord has not chosen these. So he asked Jesse, Are these all the sons you have? They're still the youngest, Jesse answered, but he is tending the sheep. Samuel said, Send for him. We will not sit down until he arrives. So he sent and had him brought in. He was ruddy with a fine appearance and handsome features. Then the Lord said, Rise and anoint him. He is the one. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the Spirit of the Lord came upon David in power. Samuel then went to Ramah. So there's the, the story of how David is first anointed, or we might say selected, to be the next king of Israel. There's a lot in that and those 13 verses that we want to talk about. But then I want to see, I think in those show what we're getting at, this idea that the way we too often have simplified or, or shortened the process and looked for immediate results can compromise what God is ultimately up to in our lives. Notice it says in verse, verse 1 of chapter 16 that when, when God is beginning to work, the end of verse 1 says, I have chosen one of his sons to be king. Fill your horn and go. I'm sending you to Jesse. I've chosen one of his sons to be king. Wouldn't it be nice if you could choose? You like to choose, right? Who likes to choose? Who likes choices? If you go to a restaurant that says, tonight you're going to get lamb. One way. Sit down and enjoy or else. Not a very popular marketing ploy. But here, it, it shows us in this that the sovereignty of God as he begins to work in the lives and in the nation of Israel, he had a particular person in mind. He had a particular direction in mind. He knew what he was about as the sovereign Lord that he would select out of all the people in Israel. What we find out later is David, the son of Jesse, the youngest son of Jesse, to be the next one in line for the throne. And, and we can look at that as we talk about our place in God's plan. You know, I think a lot of times when we think about who we want to be for God, we can get awfully jealous of those who seem to have bigger roles. Have you ever felt that way? I, I've told you this as a preacher, man. Yeah, I go, I'll go with that. As a guy that lives in church world, I look around and there are all sorts of people in all sorts of places standing before crowds that are, are massive and, and professionally you just think, wow, man, there's something about that. What would it be like? to stand before a 1,000 or, or, or 5,000. I remember in, in seminary, we had a, a visiting professor come in and said he made it his goal when he heard in class that only 1% of preachers will ever preach before a church of a 1,000. He was going to be one of that 1%. And he did. He made it to a pretty large church and went on to denominational work and, this, and that sort of thing. So, so we see that. And there's that, that ambition we all have, maybe in, in church world, but outside of from professional clergy, even those who are in, in church. You know, the Bible tells us what? That God has placed the parts of the body in the body according to his design and his purpose. So that tells me that each one of you that are here, that are a part of our church, 
have a particular place, a particular role, a particular function, an important place, an important role, and an important function to fill in this church. No, and here's where we get messed up. We think some are more important than others. Some are better than others. And a lot of times that becomes the more visible, the more upfront, the ones that seem to have place or whatever often on stage or or in leadership places. And we all aspire to that. And we make this great mistake, I think, that we equate prominence with significance. That the more prominent, even in church world, are the more significant. And I don't think that's the case at all. In fact, we've got it backwards. Elsewhere in in that passage in Corinthians, it says the, the parts that are less honorable, are treated with special honor. See, we, we, we kind of worship a God whose economy is upside down and backwards. He says things like, the first shall be last, and the last shall be... He says, if you want to be the greatest, then become the servant of all. God's economy is, is, is just different than ours. And we, in our world so strive for that top position that we miss this sort of thing that God chooses. Yes, David was chosen for that role. And he was later anointed, as we read the account a little later in the same chapter, and he would serve as the greatest king ever in Israel. But the reason he was that is because God chose him, not because he was necessarily closer to God, although he was a man after God's own heart, anybody else. It was God's design and God's choosing that allowed that to unfold. And the same thing for you. You're here and you have a role. You have a place. You have a gift to give to this church. And if you just embrace the fact that God chose you and created you and gifted you in that way and then will serve out of that giftedness, you will find, just as David had great success, you can have eternal significance in the lives of people in our community and in this church if we'll just embrace the fact that God chooses. And significance or prominence is not the number one thing. Now, we live in a celebrity culture. I know that. Boy, do I know that. Reality stars are everywhere. If you want to be a reality star, we already covered one, I guess. We won't go back there. But but that's that's kind of it. But, and in church world, we have Christian celebrities. I say, probably with some bitterness from time to time, if I go to every church conference that I'm invited to, I'm going to hear all of seven preachers, and it's the same seven that seem to rotate through all the conferences. Because, you know, they're kind of the celebrity preachers. Now, don't get me wrong, if I heard, and probably if you did too, Billy Graham was coming to town, how many of you might want to go? Yeah, yeah, of course. Big stuff. But nonetheless, just because he's prominent doesn't make his significance any different. He has simply chosen to be the evangelist that he was, and he faithfully lived out that calling and the choosing of God to great success. And you can live out your calling, whatever that may be, with the same success. You're, well, I'll never preach to stadium. So what? God didn't call you or choose you to preach that. That's what I need to say to myself. There are a little less than a 1,000 people here, about 998. That's what I put on the report every week. No, um, But that's okay. 
If I had to stand in front of a thousand people, I'd probably wet myself, and that would be bad. It would just ruin my effectiveness right from the beginning. I can be in my calling and by the placing of a sovereign God just as important, have just as much significance as the Billy Grahams of the world, just simply by obeying and living out the place where God has put me. A couple places we talked about last week was Ephesians chapter 2.10. Remember that. For you are God's workmanship. We, we use the, the translation, I think the New Living, that says you are God's masterpiece. He didn't write that just about the prominent, just about the popular, just about the heroes of faith. He wrote that about everyone who knows Christ as Savior. We are the masterpiece of God. We are the workmanship of God, created in Christ Jesus to do the good works He's He's prepared beforehand for us to do. All we have to do is live out the calling, live out the placement of God in our lives, and we have incredible significance. But we get caught up in some things. We get caught up in the same thing the prophet Samuel got caught up in. Look at verse 6. In verse 6, we see uh, Samuel is calling the sons of Jesse before him. And the first one up is Eliab, probably the oldest. And Samuel the prophet said, Surely the Lord's anointed stands before me. He looked at Eliab, and he saw in him all that he thought a king should be. And really what he saw was another Saul. Saul was the king of Israel. Saul was the one who God had rejected as king. That's why David was going to be anointed in the first place. Saul was the one who was chosen by Israel to be their king because he looked the part. He was taller and stronger and handsomer than everybody else. And as Israel looked around, they're like, we want that guy as our king. And Samuel anointed Saul as king, and he took over the throne of Israel. And as his reign ends, well, not yet, but as his effectiveness has ended, as he has not been obedient to God, as he has not lived out the calling and selection of God on his life, as he's rejected and Samuel is moving to the next person, as Samuel looks at these people, he sees in Eliab, hey, another Saul. He was a lot like Saul, by the way. He was, we think, probably all of those things, tall and handsome. But we also see him in the next chapter when David fights that giant you may have heard of. Big brother is just as insecure and just as mean as Saul was. He's Saul all over again. And Samuel sees him and thinks, well, this must be next. This must be the next king. He is the one. But what did God say? No. He's not the one. See, and that, that's, that's the thing that we get caught up in. I mentioned Billy Graham. A lot of times you'll read in, in Christian publications, who's going to be the next Billy Graham? Newsflash. Nobody. Nobody. Because Billy Grant, what is he, 96, 5, mid-90s? So when he came to prominence, can we all agree the world was different then? And his upbringing and his culture and all of that thing that, that was right, well, he was the right person for, that, for such a time as this, as was said to Esther in the Old Testament. He was the right person at the right time with God's call. And all of that came together at that time to raise up Billy Graham to be Billy Graham. But there will never be another Billy Graham. Why? Because that's kind of our human look at things. God doesn't work that way. 
God, the Bible says, watch for the new thing I'm going to do. It's happening already. Can you see it now? See, God is not interested in a formula. We love formulas. Don't you love formulas? Okay, maybe not a chemistry formula, but three steps to success. I like that. You go to the bookstore. Oh, wait, what's that you're asking? You used to go to the bookstore. And one of the biggest sections was the self-help section, right? Where you could go and it'd tell you, if you just do these three things, if you just do these five things, if you just do these seven things, you will be rich and successful and, and, and prettier and handsomer and taller and stronger and more muscular. I mean, all of it's in there. Anything you could possibly want, just go to that. Right. That is not how God works. God doesn't recycle the old. A few weeks ago, um, many of us had the chance to be in Fred Clark's memorial service, funeral service up in Orlando. And I, I wanted to mention this because I, I really appreciated what Roy, his son-in-law, said. Because when, when somebody like the patriarch of a family passes away, we all talk about who's going to fill that person's shoes. Those are big shoes to fill. We'd say the same thing about Billy Graham. And Roy got up and after saying a few things said, you know what? Nobody's going to fill Fred's shoes. In fact, they're, they're put on the shelf. He filled those shoes himself. He wore them out. He filled them so good. But by his example and by what he showed us, we can be the people we're supposed to be going forward. And I think that's how God works. You know, it's always easier to deal with a formula than it is to wrestle in a relationship. Here's my example. Let's pretend. Who's married here? This is only for the married people. If you're not married, don't listen. No, I'm just kidding. Married, okay? Let's pretend that I, one day, on the spur of the moment, bought my wife flowers and sent them to her at work, picked her up as soon as she was off, took her out to a nice restaurant. We had a lovely dinner. We went for a stroll and watched the sunset because, you know, we're in the Keys. And that, that was good. And the evening went splendidly. That's why it's for married people. Ask your kids if you don't know what that means. No. And so I said to myself, the next day, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to send her flowers. And I'm going to pick her up from work and take her out to a restaurant. And we're going to watch the sunset. But day two, the day doesn't end as well. And I say to myself, well, wait a minute. Time out. Flowers, dinner, sunset, bingo. That's the formula. Well, maybe, maybe, okay, I'll get, I'll try it again. So I'll wait a few days. I'm going to, you know, I'm just thinking through this. So the next week, pick her up. Or excuse me, I send the flowers. i got to get the formula right. Send the flowers, pick her up, go out to dinner, sunset. Guys, wouldn't it be easy if there was a formula for your wife? Like a combination on a safe, 43, 72, 15, unlocked. Have you noticed, guys? It's not a formula. What works today might backfire tomorrow. What was funny today is maddening tomorrow. Can I get a witness? Okay, good. I knew I was preaching now. 
Okay, let's bring this back to God. <laughs> the same thing is true in our relationship with God. We want a formula. God, I have a prayer request. Somebody I care about is sick. So if I get up a half an hour early and pray 15 minutes more and turn off the TV and read my Bible at night, then that person gets well. I think the next time I have a need, I just need to get up a little bit earlier and read my Bible and turn off the TV and boom, and it doesn't work. Why? Because God is not a formula. God is a person, and he invites us into a relationship, and it is always easier to default to a formula with God than it is to wrestle in relationship with the king of heaven and earth. And Samuel sees from his human eyes a formula, tall, handsome, whatever, this is the king. And God says, no, that is not the king. That is not the one I have chosen. Because what does he tell us in the very next verse? He says in in verse 7, the Lord said to Samuel, do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things man looks at. Man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks where? Man looks at the outward stuff. God looks at the heart. When Samuel saw, he thought, this is how God works. This is what kings look like. This is how God picks kings. I love Henry Blackaby's line in the old Experiencing God study. Many of you have done it. He said, if if Moses was around today in our church culture and had his burning bush, he would now be on the conference circuit speaking in towns all across America telling us how you can find your burning bush. And we would eat it up. We would buy that book, and we would go to that conference, and we would look for our burning bush. How many burning bushes were there in the Bible? One, right? I mean, there were other bushes that burned, but one that, that was God and called and spoke, that was once. And if you look, look at how Jesus healed blind people. How many ways did Jesus heal blind people? More than one. Sometimes he just said, don't be blind anymore. Sometimes he made mud. Sometimes he told him to go do something. Lots of different ways. Why? Because there's no formula in a relationship. And we look at the outward things, and we want to figure it out. We want to say this and that and the other. And and God clearly rejects that with the son of, of Jesse. No, not him. You're looking at the wrong thing. You're looking at the outward. I'm not about the outward. I'm about the heart. I'm about what's inside. I'm about seeing beyond the externals, beyond appearance. And that's the the trouble, again, with, with celebrity culture creeping into the church. Here's the thing. This is a pet peeve. I could get on my soapbox all day long. Well, chapter 10, I won't try to be all day. But nonetheless that we have this culture in, our, in, in churches where we have ministers, pastors, that somehow come out of incredibly ungodly backgrounds and are, in, are miraculously saved and transformed, and they immediately go from heathen sinner to church pastor. It, it's remarkable how quick that, that happens. It happens over and over and over again. And I've even heard some of them, if I've listened to them, kind of downplay the need for training, the need for things like education and seminary. You know, why? Well, for a lot of reasons, because but mostly it comes back to, well, I've got the Holy Spirit and God called me. But over and over again in Scripture, 
Hey, there were these 12 guys. You may have heard of that. Actually, 11 we should really focus on. They're called the disciples. God called them. How long before they did what they did? Three years, right? And what did they do for three years? Followed the Son of God everywhere he went. Pretty good training. And it still took them that long. Paul, saved gloriously on the Damascus Road. Where does he go? Arabia. For a time of intense learning and discipleship before he starts his public ministry and sets that part of the world on fire with the gospel. Why? Because we look at the outward things. Oh, that person's got the look. That person's got the charisma. That person's got this. That person's got that. And it just doesn't matter in God's economy. The heart is what's most important. The heart, out of the heart come the issues of life. Out of, the, the heart is that kind of seat of our, we even say our passions. Don't you love that God is a God who works in the realm of passion? God works, in fact, how many of you saw the movie The Passion of the Christ? Good. Aren't you glad it wasn't called The Boring Religious Obligation of the Christ? It wasn't. It was something different. Christ went to the cross. Why? For the joy set before him. God's desire in sending his son. He didn't do that begrudgingly. He willingly laid down his life. He set his face steadfastly toward Jerusalem. And that should be the same thing. Our heart, our passion should lead the way. God's looking at that. He wants to see in you the desire and, and the will and the perseverance to just be who he's called you to be and do what he's called you to do. He's not looking for the next Billy Graham. He's looking for the first you because he's gifted you and called you and placed you right where he wants you to be. And that happens not in an instant. Aren't you? Gl- oh, we'll get there in a minute. I won't say that yet. I jumped ahead to my last page. Don't get excited. Three more pages. But that's what happens. Because when you have the passion for things, you don't have to be forced into it. When I was in college, I was attending a church. I think it was First West Palm Beach. And then one day, the Lord called me to First Baptist Church of Lake Park. I, I, I just knew that was where I wanted to go to church. Now, what you don't know is because that calling happened to do with a young lady I had met on campus in the campus ministries office who told me, or let it slip, that she was attending First Baptist Church in Lake Park, and the Lord moved. You know, I got up earlier that Sunday for church than any Sunday ever. You didn't have to, you know, didn't have to remind me. I found a way. Why? Because I wanted to be there. Same thing should happen in our relationship with God. It shouldn't be obligation and boredom. It should be a desire, a passion. That's what God's looking for, that passion inside of you. And and here's the thing. God has gifted you. And and why we need that time, as we'll see David had, is because God's gift that he's given you will destroy you if the character he's building in you doesn't have time to develop. And those same pastors I've talked about, unfortunately and sadly, too many of them, after rising quickly to prominence, have had issues because their character didn't match God's calling. They got too much too soon. They short-circuited. They did the, you know, selfie upload, look at me now. Now, it doesn't always happen, but it's happened more times than the kingdom of God can, can bear. And so David was the kind of person whose heart mattered to God. In fact, let's jump to verse 10 and 11. 
little bit later, we see in the story they've gone through all the kids. And what does Samuel finally ask? He asks uh, Jesse, well, is this all your kids? Is that it? Those all your sons? The Lord does not look. We looked at that next slide, I think. I hope. Maybe not. Next slide. Are these all the sons you have? And what does Jesse say? This is, this is heartbreaking. They're still the youngest. He doesn't even call him by name. This is David's party. This is David's anointing moment in history, the beginning of some incredible stuff God is about to do that will lead to the coming of Messiah. And his own father doesn't even invite him to the, to the party, doesn't think enough of him to even ask him to come. And when he's asked about him, doesn't even call him by name. He's just the runt of the litter. And what's he doing? He's out tending sheep. See, that, it, it's, it's easy to feel overlooked, maybe. Maybe that's how we all feel from time to time, that, that we're just, nobody's noticed. I'm just trying to do what I know is right. I'm trying to follow what God has given me and the passion he's put inside of me and the calling on my life, but nobody's noticing. I don't know if David felt that way or not. I don't know if he even understood what was about to happen when they called him in from the field. But you know what I do know he was doing? Preparing himself for the moment he would take the throne. Preparing himself for that moment when everything would change. Because just a few verses later, as he's brought in, it says in verse 13, that in front of all of his brothers, he was anointed. And from that day on, the Spirit of the Lord came upon David in power. From that day on. What a remarkable thing. But you know how long it took him to become king? He was probably 16 or so years old. There's different views. 16 or so. 2 Samuel chapter 5, verse 4 says he was 30 years... 30? Yes. I'm just going to look it up. Yeah, 30 years old when he took the first throne. And it was 37 and a half when he got the whole kingdom. 20 or so years later, almost 20 years later before he had happened, what was told was going to happen in this passage in verse 13, when he was anointed in front of all of his brothers. How long? That's, that's a darkroom experience with God. You know what he did in that darkroom? He tended sheep some. Yeah. And sometimes when he was out tending sheep, you know what he'd do? He'd write music. You may have heard of some of the things he wrote. Things like, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. You could probably finish the rest. He wrote all sorts of these poems and psalms that would later be recorded in Scripture. Some of them, yes, after he became king, but some of them in the time of anonymity. In those 14 or so years between his anointing and the first time he took the throne, he was allowed the privilege of being Saul's uh, soother. Something about the way David played an instrument made Saul relax. Saul had this problem, this evil spirit that would come upon him. Of course, what you also know when you read those different passages is that one time, David's minding his own business playing a tune, and Saul tries to pin him to the wall with a spear. Just out of the blue, throws a chunk of spear at him. That's the kind of boss you want, right? There you go. You may have heard about that whole Goliath thing. Why was David ready to fight Goliath? Very next chapter. You would think if there's a moment that from anointing the coronation would usher in the kingdom, it would be chapter 17 when David says, I come with you in the name of the Lord our God and fells the giant and cuts off his head and he's the great hero. David, Saul has slain his thousands. David is tens of thousands. And yet still years have to go by. Years in the dark room. He had at least two chances, Scripture records, 
when Saul was unaware that he could have killed the king and somehow sped up the process of him taking the throne, at least twice. In fact, once he cuts the the corner of the robe off Saul and hollers at him from across the way. And God in that period was developing in David, not the outward, but the heart. David, will you resist this temptation? Will you trust that my time is right? Will you wait until the time I decide for you to take the throne? See, in our, in our world, what David would have done back in chapter 16, verse 13, he would have taken a selfie and posted it on Instagram and said, I'm the king, y'all! And how would that have worked out? Probably not the same. But instead, he was willing to understand God had called and God had set him aside and God was developing his character so that when the day came that he could take the throne, he was ready. His his heart was right before God. A man after God's own heart, in fact. And that he could become the one who would expand Israel's borders further than ever, who would establish for them a capital city, whose son would build the temple. David, desperate to build the temple, but God said, no, not you, your son. All of that, because David understood a God who works in the dark room, a God who needs time to build character into us. Let me say it again. God has called you, if you know the name and you know the salvation he offers through Jesus. God has given you a gift. God has given you a place, a purpose. God wants to use you mightily for his kingdom's sake. You can be assured of that. That's not a question for any of us who know Christ as Savior. The question is, will we allow him to develop the character in us, to take that time to build in us that which will allow us to fulfill whatever purpose He's called us to. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I thank You for what You have done through Your Son, Jesus. I thank You that in Him is salvation, in Him is hope, in Him is life, in Him is forgiveness of sins. And Lord, I thank You that for all who know You as Savior, You have called us. You have chosen us. You have given us each and placed us specifically in your body, in your church. And Lord, you've entrusted us as your church with an incredible mission to go into all the world, even to the very ends of the earth, to take the good news of the gospel of Jesus. Father, I thank you that no person, no part of the body is unnecessary no more significant or less than the other, all vital and all useful in your hands. And Lord, I pray for us as your church that we would see that reality and be willing to invest the time that you need to build into us the character of Christ, that that image placed in us at salvation can develop into the full picture of your character so that we might be the most effective, most useful tools in your hand we can be. Lord, thank you for men like David. Thank you for that example, that he was willing to wait all of those years, and that he allowed you to shape him into the man you would become. And that because of that, even today, 
We still celebrate his life. We still remember his faith. Lord, use us in ways, maybe not on that scale, but in ways that will be remembered for your kingdom. For there's no insignificant role, there's no insignificant place in your kingdom. Lord, we give you now these moments of our service. May you have your way. May you convict and guide and encourage as you see fit. We pray in Jesus' name.